Okay, I think we probably should start actually. I don't see why those of you who turned up on time should be penalised by those who arrive later. Um, well, good afternoon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Harlow. I'm a visiting uh, professor here at LSE London. Uh, but I was more relevant to this fact in I was up until 2009 the Vice Chancellor of the University of Salford. And I think I suggested to Christine, Tony and Co that we should have a seminar or seminars on higher education in London. So, so uh, having suggested it, uh, I've been asked to and delighted to do um, it. It's an interesting occasion for us to meet because at this very moment, our Prime Minister, with about 20 vice chancellors in tow, is going around India trying to persuade the Indians that the UK is a great place to come and study. Um, rather ironic, given what's happened in the past year or two. Maybe we'll come back to that later. I'm delighted that uh, we've got Joe Apple here from Universities UK, which you may or may not know is the Vice Chancellor's Trade Union, um, <laughs> Trade Association, I suppose. Um, and uh, she's going to talk, she's really going to introduce, talk about the significance of higher education more broadly in the UK and then specifically in London. Uh, there are some very special features, I believe, of higher education in London, partly a consequence of the sheer concentration of higher education in London, both in terms of teaching and research, but also um, also specific features of London itself, the London economy and so on, which, which make this a particularly interesting subject to discuss. Higher education in London is a, there's nowhere else quite like in the UK quite like London for all sorts of reasons and that also includes its higher education sector. So Joe's going to speak for about half an hour or so and then I sh I've got one or two points to make and then we'll open up the discussion. So over to you. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, can everyone hear me? Okay, yeah. Um, so my name's Joe Atwell. I work as a policy advisor for Universities UK, which, as Michael says, is um, the membership association for university vice-chancellors. Um, we have 134 members at the moment. We don't cover um, small and specialist institutions, but we cover um, uh, all the universities uh, within the UK. But we work very closely with those organisations like Guild HE, who um, represent sort of some of the, the very specialist um, uh, higher education institutions. I've been working at Universities UK for uh, just over two years now, and my remit is very much focused on um, the international side of things. So I work uh, predominantly actually in relation to immigration policy. So forgive me if my presentation has quite an international um, slant to it. It's, it's what I know best. Um, and whilst I think I'll allude to certain other trends within um, higher education, it's very much going to be um, looking at London as a sort of global hub, not just um, a hub within the UK for <coughs> students. Um, I'll start off really to just to sort of talk you through what my presentation um, is going to cover. So uh, I'll start more broadly with sort of uh, UK higher education, looking at number of higher education institutions across the country. Also allude in brief to sort of some of the trends within um, numbers of students actually studying and participation rates in higher education. But then focus, as I said before, around our sort of global position and um, London itself as a higher education hub, not just um, in terms of total numbers of students, uh, both domestic and international, but also um, our sort of international 
standing as well. Um, and I think in doing so, I'll be focusing on why sort of students um, are so important to the London um, economy and what their sort of contribution more broadly is as well. So, starting off at a national um, level, obviously I think many of you will be aware and, um, of, of some of the national trends in, in higher education most recently. I think this is something that Michael's probably going to pick up on after I've actually spoken. But um, policy initiatives like um, uh, the change in the fees regime for um, students in England and Wales, uh, the increase um, up to £9,000 for tuition fees, also the possibility that um, a greater number of institutions are actually going to be able to um, apply to have degree awarding powers clearly has implications for those institutions that already have them. Um, so that's just sort of a little bit of the, the, the kind of the national sort of context in terms of um, policy. But just to give you an indication, um, there are 164 um, HEIs, I think it is, around um, the UK. And obviously, this map perhaps isn't, isn't that helpful in that it shows that there's a massive spread in terms of, of where they are. But you'll see that there's a real concentration um, around the London area of um, higher education institutions. Certainly, um, there are more than 40 at this moment in time um, based in the London region. Um, so in terms of student numbers at the moment, and this is total student numbers, not just um, international students, I'll, uh, I'll move on to them later on, but at the moment there are just under two and a half million um, students enrolled in higher education institutions in the UK. Those figures are for 2011 12, which are the latest um, statistics that there are available from the Higher Education Statistics Agency. Um, who knows what the figure looks like for 2012-13, but those figures won't be available for about another year yet. So um, you can see from the, uh, the table that predominantly students are focused within undergraduate studies, but there's still a very significant number within postgraduate, and um, it's my understanding that actually uh, increases in student numbers have occurred far more within the postgraduate level than undergraduate level within the last few years. Um, looking at the breakdown, I guess, of students by domicile, um, you can see that predominantly uh, it's UK-based students. There are some um, students from outside of the UK but who, who are also from EU countries within the UK, um, but there's also a very significant number of non-EU students that are currently studying in the UK as well. Um, you'll see that the change from 2010-11 uh, in UK students was a 0.6% drop, 1.9% um, increase in EU students, and for non-EU students there was a 1.5% increase between 2010-11 and 2011-12. I would say that that particular um, 1.9, sorry, 1.5% increase um, was across the board, but if you were to split it up between undergraduate and postgraduate um, uh, students at non-EU level, that actually there was an increase at undergraduate level, but there was a decrease of 1.9% at postgraduate level for non-EU students. So overall, um, there was a 0.2% drop across the board for all students, UK, EU and non-EU, uh, between 2010 and 2011. If we look at participation rates um, for higher education um, between 2006-07 and 2010-11, um, 
you'll notice that there's been quite a rise both in terms of female and male participation rates um, that it's kind of tailed off to a large extent um, over the last couple of years but the participation rates are particularly high for um, women compared to men so you'll get a participation rate for females of about 52% in higher education whereas for um, men uh, it's about 42% I think so um, clearly that sort of has implications for um, the demographics within individual institutions and particularly um, when I speak a little bit later about some of the trends that are happening for international students um, you'll see that there are particular countries where the numbers are rising where perhaps um, predominantly it's more female students than male students who are coming from those countries and there's a decrease um, of uh, it within particular countries like India where the students are more likely to be male than female so clearly that has implications for diversity within um, within institutions um, to move on to look at sort of uh, the UK's global um, standing these are the latest figures from the OECD and they are from um, 2010 they were released back in September of last year um, OECD figures obviously there's quite a big time lag there so uh, it's quite difficult to say where we actually are at this given moment in time in fact we're not really going to know the market share figures um, until about 20, 2015 for, Jace, for the current time How is that measuring market share in terms of numbers of international students or what does it actually measure? It measures a um, number of, of international students, but oh. uh, so it would that 13% figure for the UK would capture um, anyone who's not actually from the UK. So that would include sort of um, EU students as well as non-EU students. So it's anybody who's not from that particular country. Um, the UK's market share actually went up quite significantly between 2009 and 2010. Um, the United States has sort of been on a bit of a downward trajectory for quite a few years now. Um, but as you can see, the UK still um, is the, the sort of second largest recruiter of international students. Um, but countries like Australia uh, and, and Canada in particular have really been sort of, uh, well, attempting to sort of increase their market share. And I think Canada is one that, that's really sort of on the rise in terms of um, what it's doing to actually attract international students. Um, if you're to look at uh, the, the sort of course type by UK, EU or non-EU students. Um, the UK numbers are uh, obviously in blue, but non-EU in green and in red EU numbers. So you can see very much for um, postgraduate level, particularly full-time postgraduate studies, there are really significant proportions of non-EU students on a lot of postgraduate courses. Um, for example, we know that there are many um, non-EU students on um, science, technology, engineering and maths courses. So again, um, you know, that has kind of long-term implications for the UK in terms of being able to um, sustain itself in particular um, subject areas and also to sort of develop academic staff and um, spe specialisation in particular areas, engineering being one of those. Um, moving on to the actual sort of international student market and the number of international students that there actually are. You can see from these globes here that there's been a really significant um, increase in the numbers of sort of globally mobile students who are looking to get a tertiary education. So 
Um, you'll see that in 2005, um, the figure was around 3 million students, but it's actually predicted to increase to up to 7 million students in 2020. So, and that's students who want to study outside of their country of origin. So it's a massively expanding um, number of students who, who want to go elsewhere <coughs> to access higher education of some type, whether that's... Um, you know, branch campuses elsewhere, whether that's coming on exchange programs for a year or two, um, or whether that's actually coming to a different country and studying a full course of study. Um, it's, it's a huge anticipated increase. So looking at London specifically and where it sits, um, I'm going to focus here on London as an education hub and how many students there actually are within London, um, what they actually contribute not only economically but in terms of skills, um, partnerships, the community, culture, etc. And then I'll move on to actually kind of looking at what London's standing is as a sort of global hub for students as well. So London currently educates about 426,000 um, students from the UK and overseas. Um, there are around 30,000 undergraduate and postgraduate courses on offer. Um, and there are a huge number of um, academic and non-academic staff. So universities, um, as employers, are extremely significant to the London economy. Um, in terms of economic impact, London HEIs generate um, around 12 billion each year. Um, these are figures uh, that were taken from um, a Universities UK uh, report from 2010, which was uh, making an economic impact higher education in the English region. So uh, clearly we're three years on from that. So it's likely that actually London HEIs generate probably far more than 12 billion a year, but that's um, a figure that's captured in that particular re report. Uh, 4.85 billion in direct economic impact, but 6.7 billion in secondary or indirect activities. Um, so that's off-campus expenditure of students, that's perhaps tourism, students and their, their families coming here and um, participating and sightseeing and eating out in restaurants and, and all that sort of thing. So 6.7 billion in secondary or indirect activities. Um, and there's 820 million from international students in London as well. So looking at what contribution... Um, London HEIs actually make in terms of skills. I've already spoken about um, the huge number of jobs, um, academic and non-academic staff within HEIs, but also the role that um, HEIs play in training um, the graduates of the future, in training staff uh, and students in particular specialties, so medical schools within London, um, dentistry schools, allied health workers, um, all those students who are going off to um, then get graduate employment and uh, I'll show you a little bit later on what kind of contribution um, individuals who've actually studied at London universities actually make to um, the workforce once they've actually graduated. Um, but also the role that HEIs play in um, startup businesses um, and sort of university and business collaboration but also in the provision of uh, continuing professional development. So a huge number of the HEIs within London are offering courses to individuals who are in employment, um, those who are perhaps undertaking part-time study as well, um, but more general sort of uh, CBD courses, lectures, 
that sort of thing. So it has a huge kind of contribution to the skill base within London. Um, partnerships. Uh, by partnerships, I'm talking very much um, sort of quite a broad view. So not only events that uh, London HEIs actually organise each year. I mean, that's quite a staggering figure in terms of saying over 3 million people actually attend events organised by London HEIs, but also school-based um, outreach activities. One of the things that my uh, colleagues within Universities UK are very concerned um, about and do a lot of lobbying on and uh, policy making on is actually uh, widening participation to higher education, and certainly um, universities within London have a very strong role to play in terms of... Um, encouraging students, particularly those from low socioeconomic backgrounds, to actually um, set their sights high and uh, come to university. So there's all those sort of outreach activities and widening participation. There's also business and community partnerships. I know when I was at university, albeit not in London, um, I spent quite a lot of time um, going out and uh, volunteering at local schools and doing sort of literacy hour and that sort of thing with local primary school students. So there's a huge role that universities play in um, business and community partnerships and volunteering as well. Um, I think you're probably all familiar with um, students and their rag week activities, but there's also a huge amount of other sort of volunteering and community work that goes on that universities um, play a role in. Uh, and I guess my final point is around sort of teacher training as well. Clearly, universities play um, an absolutely fundamental role in sort of uh, not only um, training up teachers but also um, uh, roots into academia itself and actually um, you know the university teaching function and by educating students particularly in particular um, subjects such as the STEM subjects that I was talking about earlier um, you know it's filling a void uh, in particular subject areas. Um, Innovation. London HEIs um, attract £300 million research council grants, um, £470 million worth of research funding from uh, the Higher Education Funding Council in England, but also there's the uh, inward investment from research funding as well. Um, looking at institutions and their contribution to culture. Um, there's at least 20 higher education institutions within London who provide arts and humanities teaching and research. Um, there's their community and cultural activities. There's spin-off activity with a revenue of £8 million per annum. Uh, and also the contribution of staff time for free performances, um, equivalent to £2 million. That was a 2007 eight figure, clearly um, you could probably reasonably expect that that's actually increased quite significantly. Um, there's also the role that London HEIs actually play in showcasing the UK. So um, we know, for example, that a, a number of uh, London institutions were very involved in the Olympics and the Paralympics, um, not only kind of accommodation for games officials, but also uh, hosting uh, some of the national teams. So, for example, I think, believe the University of East London hosted uh, Team USA. Uh, it trained on, on the campus. Um, but also, I guess, the, the role of institutions in actually um, <coughs> providing the games makers. Uh, I don't have figures in terms of how many um, uh, staff and students at London HEI has actually volunteered for the, uh, the London Olympics, but I would 
um, hazard a guess, it's probably quite a significant number who are actually involved uh, in being the, the games makers during London 2012. So I mentioned earlier around workforce impact, and you can see from this chart um, the bar on the left-hand side is actually um, the London uh, regional workforce, and the proportion in blue is actually those individuals who've studied in London and are now part of the London workforce, and it's 71.6%. Um, so it's a very, very significant number that actually come here study and then contribute um, to the regional workforce, um, far more than any other sort of area, um, the rest of England or Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, the proportion of individuals who are actually kind of taught in that particular region who are staying um, within London is really very, very significant. Um, I believe as well that a huge number of students, I think it's about 90% of um, individuals who've been taught in London actually either stay in London, the South East or East Anglia. So um, it's a huge number that kind of actually end up being not necessarily in London, but in this, um, in this sort of broader region. Um, if we're looking at um, London as a, a, a city that attracts... Um, highly skilled migration as well. You'll see the top line, the sort of um, ready orangey line along the top is actually um, the line for London. So you see that actually the number of highly skilled workers um, by region, London far exceeds anywhere else as well. And certainly um, the huge concentration of HEIs and the number of um, graduates who are coming out of those HEIs are no doubt an attractor um, for other sort of highly skilled migrants to come here and um, <coughs> and sort of uh, and also for companies to actually sort of um, invest in, in offices and um, operations within London as well. So looking my final section at London as um, as an international hub. Um, some of you may be familiar with um, the sort of study in London website, um, but clearly there, there's a huge um, operation to sort of attract um, students from outside of the UK to come and study in London. And this is the, the official Study London um, website. You might have your own views about that, but I'll be showing you a little bit later some of the other websites that, that other um, countries and cities have actually got in place. So looking at London by um, international student enrolments, you can see that London far exceeds any other part of the UK, any other region of the UK in terms of total numbers of international students enrolled at its HEIs. So uh, it was 69,370 uh, 2010-11. Um, it's reduced slightly to uh, 67,000. 720 for 2011-12, um, but that you know it's, it's more than double the numbers for even the nearest region of the southeast in terms of um, attracting international students. And certainly, if you look at other areas of, of the UK, I mean, it's um, it's it's absolutely huge um, number of students comparatively. So, if you look at it as actually a proportion of um, enrolments. For London, um, international students are around 22% of total student enrolments. Again, 
far over and above any other region of the country. The next nearest is the southeast, with 11% of total student enrolments being international students. I think at a national level, the total number of international students, um, when you talk about total numbers of students enrolled, is about 12%. So London um, is far over and above um, that national average. Um, so if you look at regional, uh, the split between UK students, EU and non-EU, um, you can see that London has the lowest proportion of UK students at 74%, um, with 17% of non-EU students um, and 9% of EU students, that's for 2011-12. Uh, the next nearest region being um, the eastern region. And what about London's global standing? Um, at this current time, and I'm always um, a little bit sceptical about um, these kind of world rankings because they, they look at sort of various um, common denominators, but um, I think many institutions would probably sort of argue that they're, they're not necessarily... Um, that helpful um, but having said that they are an indicator and they do get quoted quite widely so uh, London comes up as the, uh, the second uh, best city for international students in the QS best student cities rankings of 2012 um, Paris came top uh, Boston came third um, London scored particularly highly on its uh, the diversity of its student mix um, its number of institutions in the world sort of top 200 rankings and also employer activity um, it fell down on um, affordability was sort of one of the metrics that it actually scored lowest on um, but you'll also note that there were two Australian cities in the top 10 um, Sydney and Melbourne and I'll allude to some of the um, Australian activity in a couple of slides so why is London so popular with international students I think um, Here's just a few ideas. I think everyone probably have their own views, but certainly the diversity of institutions um, on offer to students. There's, I mean, and this is just students. This is domestic students as well as international. Forty-three hefty funded bodies within the London region. Students from two hundred countries. Um, Twenty-one percent of Londoners are not UK nationals, so there's a huge sort of diversity more broadly of the London population, and there's over three hundred languages spoken. Um, you only need to look at a few of the testimonials that there are on the Study London website to get a sense of why people chose to come here and study from abroad, um, not least that they had access to foods that they might like from their home country, that they knew that there would be a very diverse population, that there were restaurants and there were a huge number of different cultural activities available to those individuals. Um, but despite London's ranking as sort of being the second most attractive uh, destination for international students, um, there is a huge amount of competition that, that looms, and this is not just at sort of a national level um, in terms of the UK standing as a global destination, but also at a citywide level. So you see um, there are a number of other countries outside of the UK that are very actively trying to um, enhance their offering to students from outside of their own countries. So, for example, Australia, Canada, the USA, New Zealand, Germany and France. And just to talk a little bit about what some of those countries are actually doing at this moment in time, 
Canada, for example, um, has got a um, uh, it's established an advisory panel of uh, vice chancellors and um, other eminent individuals from within uh, the education system in Canada to actually come up with an international education strategy and to make recommendations to government about Canada becoming uh, a more attractive destination. Um, that panel has recommended that Canada should double its number of international students in the next decade. If you look at New Zealand, um, it has a leadership statement for international education. Um, again, it set itself some very, excuse me, challenging targets, such as um, doubling its number of international postgraduate students in the next 15 years. Um, some of you probably have seen some of the speeches that President Obama has made in the US recently, where he has talked very much about uh, the US needing comprehensive immigration uh, reform to enable uh, the USA to not only attract international students but to retain them in the long term um, and he's very much kind of citing um, the role that those from outside of America have actually played particularly in um, uh, technological developments in the country in recent years um, and in Australia there's been um, a sort of widely publicised um, review of the international student visa system, the night review which has made a series of recommendations around how Australia can position itself and make itself more attractive to international students as well. I mean, this very much comes after sort of quite a, a period of instability in Australia where they've sort of tried to tighten up their student visa system, but they've also suffered um, uh, a couple of really well-publicised attacks on international students as well. And there's also been, um, I guess... Um, uh, the Australian dollars sort of weakened, which has made Australian education perhaps less affordable, um, uh, less good value for money for, for students as well. So there's been very much a, um, a very careful consideration around um, Australia um, uh, making itself an attractive destination. And some of the things that have come out of that particular review have been um, enhancements to the capacity for students to be able to stay on after their studies uh, and work within the within um, Australia but also um, making the visa system a more kind of um, user-friendly system for those who who seek to to go there and study um, so whilst I mentioned that the UK has uh, traditionally had a very um, a very sort of strong position um, internationally. There's other trends such as increasing numbers of courses being taught, um, particularly within Europe, in English um, as well, which clearly has repercussions for um, UK institutions in attracting students, but also in UK institutions particularly attracting domestic students, because you might have seen um, various news stories about more students going to European um, or American universities um, because of the changes to the fees regime. Um, it's not significant numbers at this moment in time, but it's certainly something that the popular media in the UK are very interested in. So where do we currently stand at the moment? And certainly this, this particular chart, I think, kind of shows um, some of the trends that are currently happening within... Um, the UK kind of attracting students from certain countries of the world and what the latest figures tend to show. So you can see in the middle China, the numbers appear to be significantly up for individuals who want to come here, particularly um, undergrad. Chinese students typically come here and study at undergrad level. 
Um, but for India, um, the numbers are down by just under 24% um, for the last year, which I, I think um, it's very interesting that the Prime Minister currently in India is, is putting forward all the messages around the UK continuing to attract him uh, and welcome Indian students because there has been such a huge drop uh, in Indian student numbers. But you'll see that for certain other countries like the Philippines, um, also Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, um, quite significant drops, but big rises from Singapore, Indonesia, and also from Malaysia. So it's a very kind of mixed picture um, demographically for student numbers uh, and the percentage change by country between 2010-11 and 2011-12. But it has quite interesting repercussions, I think, for um, potentially... Uh, the gender of students being recruited as well from those countries. Um, as I said before, Indian students um, uh, are more likely to be male, whereas Chinese students are more likely to actually be female. So if we have a huge increase in Chinese student numbers, um, it might also mean sort of quite a significant increase in um, women studying at universities. And if there's a significant drop in uh, a country that predominantly, well not predominantly, but you know where the students are more likely to be male um, than female like India, then again that has repercussions. Um, just looking at the UK as sort of an attractive destination, this um, agent barometer survey is something that was issued to education agents who actually play um, a significant role in um, assisting students with making applications to um, other countries to go and study uh, and you'll see that um, whilst the UK has maintained sort of a position as being um, a very attractive destination in the eyes of about 63% of um, education agents surveyed um, you'll notice that Canada has massively um, increased its standing in recent years um, from 48% in 2009 to 59% um, citing Canada as being a very attractive destination. So it's quite a significant um, leap when you look at uh, the UK's um, change of reducing by about 8% in terms of being a very attractive um, destination. So whether that's something that comes about because of sort of negative publicity around visa changes or it's to do with affordability or other factors, who knows? But certainly there does seem to be a perception amongst uh, agents themselves that the UK's, um, that their, from their perspective, the UK is not necessarily viewed as being as attractive a destination as it was a few years ago. Um, if we just look... Um, in the final part around um, some of the things that are happening in, in other countries. I talked about competition looming not just at a sort of national strategic level but also from individual cities. Um, you can see from this slide that Brisbane itself, I showed you the Study London website earlier, but Brisbane has got a huge amount of activity going on um, to sort of uh, attract international students. Um, not least that it has an annual international student festival that it's had in place for the last couple of years, which um, is a day of music, dance, um, it's a food festival, um, and it's really a sort of day of celebration for the entire community of the city. Um, that seems to be something that, that's, not, um, that's not wholly uncommon, particularly within Australia. So uh, Perth, City of Perth International Student Festival, um, the Study Melbourne 
website, um, looking at other countries as well, study in Wellington, welcome to the study in New York website, um, study in Osaka and study in Auckland. So um, London, whilst it's got a very um, attractive sort of international standing at the moment, as I said before, it's facing huge kind of competition from other cities and from other countries indeed to actually recruit um, international students. So just to conclude some of the points that I've made in my presentation, um, I hope I've demonstrated that higher education is actually uh, completely integral to London as a city, um, that it contributes a huge amount to London's prosperity, uh, innovation, economy and culture but also that it's one of the most attractive destinations for international students, but it faces increasing competition, dot, dot, dot. So. Thank you very much, Sheb. Okay. Um, let me just make a few points which might help to orient some discussion. Uh, there's a series of generic challenges, if you like, that higher education open faces at the moment, but they have a specific nature in London, both because of the both because of the size and concentration and diversity of the higher education system which Jay has talked about, with the with the correlate that it's you know, detracts the lion's share of international students and so on and so forth. But also because of the nature of London as a city and particularly the fact that it's a very high cost location, which is also I think of particular significance. And when these London-specific features interact with, <coughs> as it were, the generic problems or challenges facing UK higher education, and I think there is a, there is a specific flavour to what's going on here. <coughs> and in some ways, I think, um, the whole higher education system in this country has moved rather rapidly in the past few years from being a relatively stable and subtle system to one which in various ways has some vulnerabilities, has some fragilities, uh, and uh, I think we will see those um, uh, play out in the next few years. So let me just touch on one or two of these generic issues and their, I think how they how they have a particular resonance in London and there may be you know people here who can add to these or subtract from them. There is an interaction between the new funding system for students, which means that undergraduate students end their studies with considerably higher debt and the high costs of being a student in London. And also the fact, incidentally, that in terms of low-income students, in absolute terms, because of the size of the city, the largest number are in London. And so I think the effects of these factors on widening participation in London may be quite significant and I think we haven't really got to the stage yet of seeing exactly how that plays itself out. I think people rather breathlessly been commenting on the first year or two of the new system but we haven't really seen that take off yet. I particularly think the combination of high housing costs and travel costs in London and the costs of being a student in London may be quite significant. So I would not be surprised 
get increasing numbers uh, would be students with who can learn moderate income households begin to look outside on the, the local students to study. I think that's quite right. <coughs> there are the whole set of issues relating to immigration controls. Uh, recently we had a seminar here at LSE on this issue in which Malcolm Gillies, the Vice Chancellor of London Met University, was present and you know London Met has been particularly hard hit. But you know this is a, what, what one of the things this show has shown that makes London so interesting from a higher education point of view is its diversity, is the fact that it is a huge magnet for international students and I may say international staff. And the, the, the new immigration restrictions and the extraordinary decision by this government to include students in the immigration tokens as the only way of delivering a rash political pledge to reduce net immigration to, I think, tens of thousands or something like 100,000. I think from memory it's about 200,000. I can't quite remember what This, I think, is, is going to have significance uh, for institutions across the UK, but particularly, as I say, London. And not thinking just about international students for the moment, but also international staff, a great deal of the high-quality research, particularly in the STEM subjects, but not only in the STEM subjects in London, is fueled by the fact that it's able to recruit and retain high-quality Postgraduates from abroad and then keep them in the country and keep them in our system. And it's interesting because I was at a meeting a few days ago with uh, the Vice Chancellor of the University of Oxford, and it is a significant issue for Oxford, as I believe it is for LSE in terms of recruiting international staff. It's a, an issue of growing, growing significance. Let me move on to a third issue which is the impact of the new student funding system and the high costs of study in London on postgraduate recruitment. And of course, as a part of postgraduate recruitment, it's the international student issue, but I'm talking about home students here. <coughs> Some of you may have seen, there's a very good report, if you haven't seen, go onto the Saturn Trust website, and there's a very good report called the Postgraduate Premium, which is looking at the impact of postgraduate education on social mobility and, and lifetime earnings. And it shows increasingly the possession of a postgraduate qualification is very important in terms of uh, the labour market premium and in terms of social mobility. If we have a situation in London in particular where not only is it very expensive to um, be educated as an undergraduate, but also if you come from overseas, you may find it very difficult to get in in the first place. I think the knock-on effects for postgraduate uh, post recruitment and the ability of London institutions to maintain their high levels of postgraduate recruitment may be quite significant, and more significant, I'd suggest, for these because of these London-centric reasons than other parts of the country, although they'll be significant there as well. I won't say much about research funding, except to say that, as Joe showed, about three quarters of a billion a year, and that's just in FC funding and research council funding, if you take into account the vast amount of money that comes in for 
medical research in London, where you know, the whole national system of medical research is absolutely dominated by research in London and the London region. I guess we're talking about, we could probably double that figure. You know, it's a vast amount of money coming in for research. Now, for, for the 10 years up to 2009-2010, um, the government pumped more and more money into research, and London institutions benefited greatly from that. We, the last public expenditure settlement, the first one under this government, reinforced of the research money put in the cash terms, which meant in real terms it's a significant reduction. I think we now probably face a, a probably a cash reduction in research. We'll be very lucky after the next public expenditure review and the next REF if there isn't a cash reduction, if only because the unbudgeted costs of the new student support system. Those costs are going to have to be met from somewhere, and many people feel they may be met from reduction of research funding. So I think, again, the, the excellence that London has in research and its ability to attract large-scale research funding may be something to take in the future. And again, because of the concentration of research here, that effect may be more significant in London than elsewhere. It's a large system with over 40 HEIs, as Joe said, and there's also a growing role for private providers. So one of the interesting things that's going on in the university world generally, which has become increasingly like a neoliberal business, is uh, an international business. Of course, there's growing competition between institutions. And there's the introduction now of private providers in higher education. Where are those most likely to be concentrated? I suggest a lot of them will be concentrated in London. I read in the news either today or yesterday that there's an Indian private university that David Cameron's been talking to that plans to open a campus for 15,000 international and mainly Indian students in London. Now, in my experience, these plans are often announced and rarely come to fruition, but if they did come to fruition, that would make a considerable hit on the ability of, I suspect, of of other institutions in London to recruit <coughs> students. In general, there are real issues about competition versus collaboration across the university system, which I don't think the university system is uh, particularly able to think seriously about at the moment. And particularly in London, where you have 42 HEIs in a very small area, all trying to compete desperately with one another. Think of the expenditure on marketing apart from anything else in the standpoint of um, And in general, there's simply the high cost of providing higher education. It's a high cost location for premises, it's a high cost location for students, it's a high cost location for staff, you have to pay more for staff in London than you do elsewhere. And so, you know, it, these high costs have been able to be met by London institutions in a situation where the research, where the research money was flowing in, or where the international students were flowing in, because there's been considerable cross-subsidy, particularly international students to the rest of the system. All of that is more questionable in the future, it seems to me. So I'll stop there. We've got about half an hour for discussion. But I think there are, as I said at the beginning, some generic issues for higher education in the UK, some genetic challenges, but they have a particular salience in London. Okay, let's 
open site. Yes, personally, I want to highlight just three observations on what you've said. Yeah. Uh, about um, the cost of living in London and students moving out because of that. I'm quite surprised at how many students are from London and stay within London, about 50%. Mm -hmm. I would think that's an alternative to what you said. So they'll live at home rather than yeah. move out. And we don't know how that's going to play for, for home students, but. but I'm oh, sorry, yeah, I'm just I mean, London's been an escalator region. It's got to use that phrase. It's brought students have migrated to London from the outside. And those students don't have the opportunity to yeah, go to sure, yeah. do that. And the competition aspect, that's quite interesting because I think what we see is some of our membership with London High, these are these so-called campus branches, so they're actually within the Hefke system. So you've got UEA London, you've got Coventry in London, Glasgow Calvin in London, Sunderland in London, yes. and, and you know, so so it's not just from the so-called private providers, I've got to think. And, and what, what are their strategies? I think Glasgow Calvin has got quite you know, impressive business plan that they've of. Um, and in the privates, yes, yes, um, I, I think there's a diversity within the private sector as well. So if you look at Regents College or American Intercontinental, uh, they might be described as not-for-profit privates. And the profit for-profit for privates are the ones you think you mostly mean. Yes, yes, sort of aggressive yes. Phoenix type, yes, you know, yes. they're, 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 but it's just, yeah. Um, but it, I, think, I think what we're seeing more and is the campus Developments within, and as I said to Joe just before the meeting, Roehampton will be hosting something called Glion, which is an international Swiss-based private provider specialising in hospitality degrees. But that will be based at the Roehampton campus. Cardiff University are going to be starting an MA in digital journalism with the Guardian in September. So, lots of different things going on. But that's, that's Thank the Bad University of Westminster. And thanks for the presentation. I'm interested in some of the issues relating to the international student dimension of the, of the London economy and broader housing issues that you touched on at the end then, Michael. Um, I mean, I think I'm interested firstly in the numbers in terms of whether there's been comparison done with the census data, because I've always been concerned that actually we have been massively undercounting students in London in terms of general population analysis, which actually, of course, feeds into the so-called planning of, of London's infrastructure mm. and housing mm. and everything else. Mm. There's also, I think, an issue, which I, I don't think you covered, was the proportion of international students that are actually staying into the London, coming into the London mm. workforce, because that's obviously bringing in additional skills into the London workforce, but also, of course, increasing the competition for the domestic graduates which raises issues about the relationship between employment growth in London and international competition. My main issue, however, is, is actually on the housing implications, because what you haven't covered is the whole additional pressure that international students have put on the housing market. It's obviously not their fault, they're here, we're getting their money. But I mean, in terms of the extent to which universities haven't provided additional accommodation for students in line with the increase in recruitment, including international recruitment, and also the increasing trend we're seeing in recent years of very well-off international students buying into the London housing market, or their parents buying into the London housing market. Good for investment, but basically bad in terms of housing shortage. The final point I want to make was coming back to the UK 
interregional relationship because we always stress that London brings in students and those students stay in London for jobs if they can get them, partly because they're more likely to get them here than elsewhere. Um, but that does, of course, increase the regional imbalances in terms of the relationship between economic sustainability in London and the rest of the country. But basically, the skilled workforce is not going back to their areas of origin, which has very negative consequences for, for those other cities. And obviously, given your past problem in Salford, you, you may well have an interest in that. There's a, a whole range of other issues in terms of having how we actually need to change the curriculum we teach in London universities because of the changing international market and the proportion of international students going up and teaching in two universities in London on courses which are now half to or more international students is, is challenging in terms of what we actually teach. But others may want to raise that later. But I think the whole issue about the relationship and some of the consequences of the growth in international students in terms of how it impacts on the rest of London, we, we can't ignore. This is more than just a promotional exercise. Sure. I think um, certainly when you look at um, international students and, and impact of students on the housing market, um, a lot of the studies that have been done around international students have really very much kind of focused on the benefit side of things as opposed to the costs. Um, I am aware that um, clearly not, this is not a London institution obviously, but University of Sheffield has um, undertaken a cost-benefit analysis um, that I think it's due to um, release within the next couple of weeks and that exact issue is one of the things that they've actually um, been, been looking at so I'd be very interested to see how they've actually sort of attempted to um, quantify what impact that's had on kind of the local housing market and and other impact but certainly um, it's something that I think would be a useful thing to be done within London to get a very uh, much more solid understanding of you know the pros and cons of um, international students. I think um, you raised the point about um, proportion of non-EU students uh, getting jobs and potentially what kind of impact that has on um, uh, graduates and I think this is actually a real bugbear of mine because the, the data that there is that's available around those who've studied here and moved into employment is incredibly poor um, not least because the Home Office doesn't actually have a mechanism for tracking uh, each individual's journey through the immigration system so it's really really difficult to understand um, the extent to which people have made those journeys and actually stayed on and what potential impact that might have on um, the domestic population and also on domestic graduates and I think Universities UK is, as, as an institution has very much kind of sort of said well you know employment after studies is an important element of the offer but given you know some of those concerns around domestic students potentially um, you know finding it very difficult to get a job post graduation as well clearly you can't be sort of advocating for sort of unfettered access to the labour market but there is a real gap in the data on how many individuals actually um, stay on and work and for how long they actually stay on as well because clearly there's a difference between someone staying on for a year just because they want to get some experience and those who stay on in the long term and what impact that might have and I think um, you know it's an area that there needs to be a lot more, um, a lot better kind of understanding of it. 
John Hall, no fixed abode for some time in that association. Many, many fixed abodes in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting, Joe. And I wonder if you or any of your colleagues in the universities in the UK are thinking about the global e-university as it affects the UK, as it affects London. Because if we look at the monuments of London, there's Senate House not very far from here, which was, in a sense, in the 30s, uh, the Empire University and reaching out over the world, not just uh, for the member colleges of the University of London at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think of that, my question would be to anybody who might answer it, uh, how does London's participation in these new forms of e-learning beyond the three-year undergraduate course, the one-year taught masters and all the PhD or whatever. How is London performing for CPD that you mentioned? Uh, how is it performing for influencing curricula, influencing syllabuses in other parts of the world because of the expertise that London institutions have? Yeah. Um, certainly I don't have um, any kind of statistics around <coughs> London institutions and sort of e-learning e and that kind of provision but your question is a really valid one not least because of all the um, the recent coverage that there have been for example around sort of massive open online mm. courses the MOOCs I love that word that's my favourite kind of acronym uh, mm. at work but um, and there is quite a lot of work that Universities UK is actually doing around MOOCs and their um, their potential but also I think some of the issues that exist around them as they're uh, as currently because clearly there's, there's potentially a massive opportunity there and if you look at you know some of the stuff that's happening in in other countries through um, MIT and Coursera and, and all the rest of it that you know there is potentially huge um, reach of these courses not only sort of domestically and people sort of dipping in and out of higher education um, throughout their lives and undertaking modules but also the global reach I think there's a lot of questions there that, that are very much kind of open questions and unanswered at the moment around the quality of that provision um, accreditation whether for example individuals can do those kind of courses and um, and use them to, to you know, get a particular qualification, or that they'll it'll enable them to you know use them as evidence when they make an application for for a course. So that there's a lot of issues there around um, around accreditation and quality assurance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But certainly, UK is very <coughs> aware of MOOCs, and there's a lot of work that colleagues of mine are actually doing to kind of look at um, that whole landscape. And certainly, I think where uh, we're scheduling a, a conference on that later on this year, but also um, an actual publication that's due to come out. Um, I think maybe April May time, but I'm not. I don't think it's confirmed as yet when it will come out. But it's it's in draft form, the publication at the moment. Because London, if it wanted to uh, form the view, could almost constitute itself as a world. Yeah. I'm thinking of the world service and the BBC, a world university service. Yeah. But individual institutions like Kings and one or two others obviously join one club. Others are doing it themselves, yeah. and yeah. Well, there was there was a there was a great planning disaster in a sense for the Higher Education Funding Council about 15 years ago. Some of you may remember they put quite a lot of money in trying to get an e-university going, and they ended up by losing a lot of money, and the whole thing was closed down. The best example we, I mean, it still is the case. I believe it's the case that London University. Runs, internet, runs uh, has 
says international degree of progress yeah, does progress. Progress. And the other example that we have is of course the open university yes. um, which is the most successful university in its type in the world by far and, and the OU I know has looked at expanding internationally and has somewhat drawn its tentacles in and it was very ambitious to do that one of the things, the lessons of the OU is that the um, is that that for that sort of online learning, really the requirements in terms of on-the-spot support are really quite substantial. If you're not turned up with the sort of dropout rates that you get from these American institutions, which are incredible, I mean, I think less than one in ten of the students who start with these online universities eventually graduate, and it usually takes them very long time to do so. So they are very inefficient ways of providing delivering higher education. One mix is the flavour of the month at the moment. I just wonder whether I just really wonder how much that is going to work. I think is what I think is much more likely is that the is that some institutions will become multinational businesses with you know setting up plants in other countries. It isn't just a question of the universities up north setting up branch campuses down here. But I can really see, you know, if you've got a good brand like Harvard or MIT or maybe IC, then you sort of market the thing internationally and the next step is to provide it over there. Of course some universities are doing that, Nottingham for example, it's well known for having um, opened its campus at Ningbo in, in China. My impression is that those businesses, as that's what they are, have been so far economically marginal, if not, if not losing money for the institutions that have started. So it's a very answer. I think it's very uncertain. Sorry, Christine. Yeah, I just to say the international program is now split up between colleges. It's oh, is it? Right? Okay. University. It's okay. run by LSE runners. Okay. Economics class, for instance. And I think we've got very obvious problems, and one of them is the nature of globality. Yes. These things are not global. Yes. They are identified in the case of economics, Singapore, Hong Kong, and a, and a few other cases. Yeah. In the context of uh, the talk, sorts of international things you're talking about, the ones I know about, where maybe an American universities set up five or six, they're all in second level Chinese states. Yes. They're being paid for by China. Yes. Do things. So what is related to that is the whole quality story. Yes. Uh, and uh, what what we're doing, and I know even in the international program, I've got real concerns. Could we come back right to the beginning? Because I'm actually not convinced that the London story is quite what we're talking about. If you, could you give me the figures you gave at the very beginning? Yeah. Because I didn't think that if you looked at it, London was providing enormously out of proportion for, for the country. And traditionally... Do you mean in terms of international students? No, no, in terms of students, full stop. Oh, students, full stop. Mm, um, and, you know, right at the beginning, yes. you had uh, a proportion of uh, the total number of students uh, in the country, which is 2.5 million. And London is doing 426,000. Yes. Uh, that's not vastly out of line with the population, given that the population of London is not 
all elderly and satisfied concentrated in the right areas and given that when you take out the international students which are heavily concentrated in London. So it's not clear to me that London is over, in fact it's under provided for in historic terms. Um, so I just think it's just big. It's 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 big. Uh, and in fact, it links to the question of your gender mm. um, Traditionally, it's been very, seemed to be very difficult for young men in the South East yep. and, and to get into reasonable universities. So I think the young. Um, worried about starting from an idea that we are overprovided. I think uh, the, there wasn't a there wasn't a figure that I stated in the presentation around proportion of domestic students at London yeah. has, but certainly in terms of the concentration of institutions. In total, yeah. And London is 426,000, yeah. It's, it's not, it's yeah. It's not out of line with the yeah. population once you take a few yeah. institutions. But certainly I think um, in terms of the, the, the concentration of the international students is obviously a lot higher than, but yeah, you're right in terms of domestic. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, I did have a figure that I, I lost, I had it for that earlier seminar we were at, but if you look at the dependency of UK higher education institutions on overseas students, well, that's, that's that is quite significantly concentrated yes. in London, particularly here, of course. <laughs> yeah, let's see. But no, you know, let's see. There are about it's five concentrated in tourism. It's less yeah. concentrated than international tourism. And of course, in terms of in terms of the contribution to the finances of higher education institutions. International students are incredibly important yeah. uh, because they that pay astronomically expensive oh. fees. Yeah. It's more important than I thought when the numbers that your, your numbers on what international students were doing to the economy are very low. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, that begs the question. I mean, we understandably discussed, uh, and we do tend to discuss, I certainly, higher education in London as uh, an industry, really. Yeah. I suppose it started off as something else. Uh, I mean, it had intrinsic purposes and um, <laughs> had purposes that were to service the London economy. Certainly, the LSE was set up for, you know, to help people in commerce understand business and railway industry people to understand business. And it sort of moved as a result of a series of accidents, the, you know, the expansion of higher education, um, globalization, decline in traditional industries, both of cheap travel and other things, into being an industry. And I suppose this, the question would be, should, is, is that how we should predominantly think about it in the future? I think that's a very good, I do think that's a very good question. I did make my crack about neoliberal business, I think. I think that is an interesting issue. I do think that higher education is strange because actually if you regard it as, I do think it's become a business in a way, but I don't think it's a terribly efficient business. If you were, if you were to redesign it from the start, I think there are too many independent, separate businesses in the higher education economy in London. The, extent to which you could actually reduce the overhead costs, I believe, would be actually quite significant. 
know, do you actually need, that's just direct myself and my pastor, do you actually need 42 overpaid vice chancellors, for example, to run this system? Do you need 42 overpaid directors of, human, of uh, HR and so on and so forth? You see what I mean? I don't think it's actually, it's trying to be a business, but I don't think it's a particularly effective business. So I think it's sort of stuck somewhere between one world and the other. It's sort of consumption really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, and, and in that sense, you wouldn't expect it, you'd expect it to be a very diversified set of outputs, yeah. which offered people very different things for consumption good type purposes. I think if you look at certain other developments as well, like the key information set, that's very much kind of presenting almost universities as being, yes. you know, a kind of offering yes. and that, you know, there's far more transparency around different elements of the university offer that students can now look at through the key information sets. Yes. Whether they do is another matter. Well. Well. Except you can comment on lots of aspects of this, but I'll stick to one point, which I suppose is in the front of my mind because I come from university college, which at the moment is contemplating kind of doubling in size or something like that, and putting a big campus which is controversial for all sorts of reasons, yeah. because it displaces a place of state. But it raises the other question, which is how wise it is to build a future on what is really becoming a kind of luxury market for small international elites. Student at LSE. Yes. There were three UK students. And so it hasn't changed. 
But it is a potentially unstable market. It's bigger skew, bigger number. It is, it is a potentially unstable market, it seems to me. And it's very interesting to see whether and to what extent. I mean, I'm absolutely clear that one of the reasons why the Chinese invited a number of UK universities to have to, to form campuses in China, so what they could learn from them. So I do wonder, I do think it's quite an, a potentially quite unstable system. The idea that it will just continue to expand and continue to expand, I think is questionable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the comparison with, with tourism was interesting um, because effectively, you know, we are being marketed because we're London much more than in a sense we're being marketed for our educational expertise. I mean, obviously, different universities tackle it different ways. And I think it's difficult to treat all the 42 higher education institutions as if they're the same because obviously they're targeted at, at somewhat different markets. But I think Michael's comment that, you know, the implication. I think what he's saying is that we're targeting ourselves as an international elite, but it's actually a financial elite rather than an educational elite. Yeah. Is what's beginning to happen with some of our institutions. On the other hand, there are other institutions, should we say, lower down the scale in London in terms of educational qualification, who are just recruiting international students who may actually be of a standard which wouldn't actually get them into universities in their own country. That's possible. Um, and that's certainly my experience from London Met, I have to say. I think also this issue about what we're teaching and the benefit to the students. I mean, clearly, in some subjects, trying to teach basically an internationalised education does require changes in the way we teach, certainly in a, in a multilingual manner, um, as well as, in a sense, dealing with students from a whole range of different traditions, which we're not necessarily in all courses or universities actually geared up to do. And we're not necessarily thinking this through serious enough. And I think there are issues, you know, a potential issue of, of, of dumbing down what we actually provide because of the linguistic difficulties of some of the students we're recruiting. We may be, in some are very bright, but not necessarily uh, of the linguistic competence to cope um, with, in a sense, the way we teach. I mean, that's one element of it. Obviously, there are other courses which are run on a sort of very internationalised, generic way where that is less of a problem. But I think the impact on what we're teaching our students is actually something that we need to consider more fully, and certainly I'm beginning to wonder bluntly whether some of the international students actually get a good deal, which may not matter too much in the sense that they're here because it's London and to get an English degree rather than necessarily you know, skills that they can actually use in their own countries. And it's a difficult subject, but we can't carry on ignoring it in the way that we are at the moment. Well, I think it's true, Joe, isn't it, that there has been a growing volume of comments. From, I mean, I've only read what's reported in the press, but there do seem to be quite a number of would-be Indian students who now say, well, it's high cost and we doubt the value, really. I mean, mm. I think that feeling is growing. Now, that's just impressionistic. I don't know whether there's any firm basis for yeah. that, but it is, there is certainly is that impression. There's certainly a, a, a big drop in numbers, but yeah. it could be for all manner of reasons. That I, want, been that I wanted to make a different point there, because we, we focused on international students, but there is another issue which is going to mean, which isn't, I think, specifically London, except that it may be in terms of 
high cost in London detail students from home students from Canada. The government is set on trying to, to is, is set on trying to deregulate the undergraduate market. It is set on trying to deregulate it. One of the things that's protected the universities is that year over year out, if you're running a university, you would more or less assume you're going to get contract members from the funding council and more or less knew what your money was going to be. There were little upsets at the margin and so on, but basically it was a fairly stable system. And one of the big things that's happened is that stability is now being removed by the policy of you know A, B and so on and so forth. It's now being removed. And there is extreme, and it's very interesting that UCAS is, is refusing at the moment to publish, as it's always published before, the application statistics for individual universities. But I know they show a great deal of volatility. And there will be some institutions in London, not just London Met, but there will be some institutions in London that find significant chunks of their undergraduate bread and butter market have disappeared. And it's, to me, it's inconceivable. I mean, I'd be really surprised if in 10 years' time we still had 42 IEM. AGIs in London. I really think some of them are going to find themselves in extreme difficulty. Whereas in the past, under the old system of gentlemanly, and it was gentlemanly, tutelage by the University Funding Council, University's Grant Committee before that, and the FC since then, actually institutions that got in severe difficulties have been managed to be discreetly bailed out one way or the other. Remember Thames Valley. Even London Met has been up to some extent. I suspect that's going to become increasingly difficult to sustain. And certainly, the government's made it clear that it's prepared to contemplate universities going to the wall. Whether it really understands the political comeback if that happens, I don't know. Whether they will press ahead with it. But it is a system that is becoming more unstable. More unstable. I'm going to come back to your point, and that is the relationship between I mean, the proportion of university students only the population, the labour market, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you said actually London is not standing out all that much in relation to the UK, and uh, intuitively I'm actually believe that, because we're hyping ourselves up so much, you know, from 8.6 billion people, a lot more, but you know, until when, and they go up, they go down. And so my question would be to you, have you, have you in any way looked at that sort of proportion in other countries, in, in the countries from where you want to attract foreign high fees paying students, i.e. in Malaysia, in China, and so on, where, from my anecdotal memories, that the UK has actually gone there and set up universities and trained the staff and so forth, I mean, you know, 40 years ago. So there is not nothing there. There is, there is an infrastructure of higher education, probably even a good one, and then the people have their own culture, they, have their own, they can live at home, they have a lifestyle, blah, blah, all that sort of thing. I mean, to go for a stint to do a term, it's okay, but to, to go a three-year undergraduate course somewhere where it's raining the whole time, where nobody's friendly. So I did it, so I know. <laughs> and my nephew did it. A whole secure. But anyway, so I think this is a, especially in terms of the long term you're talking about, this instability which, which is created from within in the UK, then, then obviously it's a dynamic situation. So surely the universities in those countries, like the ones who attract outreach universities in Nottingham, and I actually happen to know someone who's, who's gone there, taught in China. 
But as you say, they're learning from it, and then that can work the other way around. You know, they can they can have actually have their outreach the other way around. Why not? Well, this is the Indian University plan to set up a trying procedure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So so I think this dynamic, the longer term dynamic, I think is important to look at as well. There's also, um, I mean, there's lots of ways and means of, of doing it. If you look at, um, I guess, some of the uh, the most recent projects, like the Science Without Borders project with Brazil, where you know it's a it's a certain number of government-sponsored Brazilian students coming over here over the course of five years. Um, you know, some of those students are doing full-time PhDs, but a lot of them are literally doing, um, you know, a year in the UK, whether that's a year of part of their PhD or a year as an undergraduate. These kind of um, you know not exchange programs, but you know they're, they're coming here for a shorter period of time and then go back. So they build a link with the UK, but it's not for the whole period of study. But also, um, you know, there are a lot of questions around the outward mobility of UK students, and traditionally the UK has been really poor at actually sending its students elsewhere. And so th there's a lot of scope to sort of try and work on not only maybe students coming here for a short period of time, but how many of our students we can actually get to go and have a global experience themselves, because th there is a really big issue with UK students not going elsewhere as well, you know, trying to, I guess, be creative about how, how to do that. Right, uh, two minutes to six, any last points? All done. Well, thank you all very much, and thank you, Joe, very much. Perhaps we could thank you.